Hi, and welcome to KIOS at the Movies. I'm your host, Joshua LaBure, and I'm here with Diana Martinez and Patrick Kenny from Filmstreams. Hey there. Hi. And we have a special guest today, Brett from Revolutionary Left Radio. Hello, thank you for having me on. And today we're talking about the film Can't Get You Out of My Head by Adam Curtis. We are living through strange days. Across Britain, Europe and America, societies have become split and polarized, not just in politics, but across the whole culture. There is anger at the inequality and the ever-growing corruption, and a widespread distrust of the elites. Yet at the same time, there is a paralysis, a sense that no one knows how to escape from this. Even in America, where there is now hope with the new president, there are also fears that despite the growing crisis, the system will just return to normal. This paralysis is also fueled by a technology driven by the aim of giving you today another version of what you had yesterday. And never a different tomorrow. Can't Get You Out of My Head is a sprawling six-part documentary that director Adam Curtis describes as an emotional history of the modern world. And when you experience this series, I feel like you'll agree. This film uses a dizzying array of archival footage, poetic narration, and dreamlike musical breaks to weave together a story to describe our current political landscape and the individualism that has pervaded our societies and led to the proliferation of conspiracy thought and the rise of distrust in our institutions. If it wasn't already solidified, Adam Curtis has shown why he is considered a documentary artist. So... What are your guys' initial thoughts about Can't Get You Out of My Head? Uh, What are my initial 100 thoughts about this movie? (laughs) Um, It's dense. It's it's a lot. I mean, and it's, you know, not just talking about the running time. I mean, um, this is probably something, you know, I could think about and probably will be for, for years. I mean, this is so big. It's, it's such a huge... Yeah, it's so, huge. It's, so just to put months. it in the context, you know, this is a basically almost seven-hour long series, and I, the only way I can describe it is it's an archival epic, and his description of uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head, um, the, the subtitle is An Emotional History of the Modern World, And that's just something that I think is so incredibly important to point out because you can get lost in the details in this or you can just experience it as a whole and and experience it for the, uh, I mean, exactly what he says, the emotional history of it. So I'm curious, Brett, um, yeah, I mean, what are your initial thoughts of like that first episode jumping in? Were you familiar with Adam Curtis before this? So yeah, I was I was somewhat familiar with uh, Adam Cur- Curtis having seen some of his work and sort of knowing the cultural role that he plays um as a sort of he describes himself as a television journalist, but others could call him an artist or something like that. And um the the fact that he does personally hand pick all of this footage and put it together himself, I mean, lends credibility to calling him an artist. Um, and so just zooming out a little bit before we get into the specific episodes, I think it is important to try to see what he's trying to do here, which is this super ambitious analysis of 
um, culture, global culture, specifically Chinese, Russian, British, and American, um, since the late 1950s all the way up into today. And through these montages of, of footage and his narration, he's trying to sort of describe a structure of feeling um, that that is has taken over how that structure of feeling has sort of come about and and the dead ends that it has sort of hit and that is I think the 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 thrust behind the idea of an emotional history and it does seem like a radical act to focus on that because I feel like in the the very culture that he's uh, uh, speaking about here that led to kind of this distrust with um this distrust with institutions and elitism that that have led us to this moment that we're in with like such a vast collection of conspiracy theories and distrust in in institutions and um it really is an emotional thing you know and 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 it's almost a radical act to put that into context because in our society of the more technocratic state that we live in this is kind of like not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so for me, I thought the second episode was the most successful for me um, because the first episode like has to set up this huge scale of history, as Brett pointed out. Like not only is it like a long span of time, it's like a really complicated argument that he's trying to make here because it's not about um, like material things as much. Right. It's about these structures of feeling. It's about how they're um, imbricated with one, with one another. And I think the second episode really gave me those threads, like through the biographies um, of, I think, uh, four people, three women and, and a man, like we we see this history in action and we see that structure of feeling in action. A lot of them are almost tragic figures in the way that like the very thing that they um, activated was the thing that kind of became their downfall. And so for me, like that episode um, was a really nice way of like telling, of giving a focus to this really large history. Um, obviously, like I, I really liked the rest of the series. But for me, if if this is maybe the first time that you're experiencing Adam Curtis's work, I think getting through that, you know, wading through that first episode, like you kind of get a sense of, of what he's about, the kind of stock footage that he's really interested in, these like weird moments of... Um, you know, people dancing. So it's like dissociating from things that he's saying. He uses these tropes. But I think the second episode really um, shows how great he is at telling history, telling history through this like really like micro moments in people's lives. Yeah. And, and to your point, it's it's this sense that these individual figures are vectors through which um, the, the ideology of history is happening. And these people simultaneously stand for and advance ideas and are you know, consumed by those ideas. And so they're, they're, they're like punished and advancing a set of ideas that he po points out as particularly important and relevant to the overall, as I said earlier, you know, structure of feeling or ideology of the, of the time and how it developed. For me, it's like so hard to pull out an episode that I thought was my favorite because each one just really made me want to get more into trying to understand where, you know, you kind of get a sense of where it's going in the first episode, I feel like in the first couple episodes, but then it kind of turns into this, like, it's, I mean, it's so hard to talk about this series because there's so much <laughs> and talking about it as a whole. So all I can really do is just talk about like, um, 
you know, just how it made me feel as a whole, because I mean, it, 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 it really challenged a lot of ideas that I have, but also confirmed a lot about, you know, the rise of individualism, you know, uh, this uh, devolving into conspiracy theories and and myths. And uh, it put it so much into context of things that I think about that are really hard to articulate in society. And Brett, this is kind of in your wheelhouse. So I'd really like to hear, you know, how you felt about the whole, you know, in this like specific moment that we're in and what this film was trying to say about this moment politically that we're in. I think you got at something important that it's, it's as an emotional history, it's meant to evoke certain emotions from you. And it is an emotional experience. It's, it's hypnotizing. It's, it's bewildering. Um, it's hard to put your finger on at any given time, what he's trying to say. And I personally walked away from it, although he, he strikes a note of optimism at the end, feeling sort of a vague sense of like dread and, and like this, this pessimistic feeling. I didn't walk away from the film feeling particularly good or, or uplifted, but if the film is about anything, it really is about the tracing of the, the development of this sense of individualism and out of the old collectivisms of the past and then how that specific sort of individualism has evolved, transformed and ultimately hit a dead end. And the the conspiratorial nature of, of the modern world and the nationalist forces on the march across the globe, um, you know, t on, on Adam Curtis's account, are really a, a failure of that uh, particular process to unfold in a meaningfully virtuous or, or you know, forward thinking way. It is sort of hit a dead end. And it doesn't offer us the, the modern world doesn't offer us any story, as he would say, any explanation of why things happen and any unifying story that we could come around to believe in anymore. And so in that vacuum, you have things like conspiracy theories and rabid nationalism sort of filling that void. And so if anything, it is it, it is a sort of diagnosis of the problem. Um, of individualism and its end. And then the, the very end, if there's an optimistic note, it's this attempt to gesture toward what might be coming. He himself doesn't know what it is, but he knows that this can no longer sustain itself. And so the old collectivism is dead. The quote unquote modern individualism is dead. What comes next? Something like probably a synthesis of the best of those two things are needed but nothing is really being presented at the moment to to put that on offer in any real way. And he said something in an interview before I, before I end that I think is an interesting way to think about the collectivist and individualist uh, sort of diagnosis and tension. He says, um, collectivism is like going into the woods in the middle of the night with your friends. Like it's thrilling and there's meaning behind it and it's exhilarating and 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 that's that's interesting and fun in its own right but he's like individualism is like going out into the woods at night by yourself you know it might be a little exhilarating at first but the moment a, a twig snaps right fear overwhelms and in this hyper individualist society that we've created globally especially after the 2008 crash and all the crises that we're facing looking down the barrel of climate change it's that being in the woods at night by yourself feeling and it leaves a lot of people um, anxious, uh, fearful, and and not really knowing what to do or, or where to go as as a, as a society and as individuals. I also wanted to add that I think it's really important that in this history of, um, you know, moving away from the collective individualism, that he centers women's stories. Um, I think it's a different way of of telling history, especially in the way that we tell 
like in America that we tell the history of like American individualism and like the, the great men that arise out of that individualism. Um, and I also think it's really important that he included China within that story. Right. So much of like um, the way that we like talk about that, the, the country um, just like perpetuates these stereotypes, you know, like if everybody's talking about like stop, um, you know, Asian hate, all this, th- like part of that is is from like the government's way that they uh, create such a distance between like our form of governance and then theirs. And here you have actually like symmetries between like what's happening in that country alongside with Russia as well. Um because I think it's really important to center that story. And I think Adam Curtis, like being British, like comes from a different point of view where he's realizing that like Russia and China will are, or once America admits it, will soon be the economic and kind of cultural centers of the globe um, as opposed to the West. And so like these stories, it's really important to tell them from those vectors because those histories will probably matter more in the coming future than our own. Yeah, and I think just taking Chinese history seriously is a is a big part of, of doing the work of sort of, you know, in the Edward Saidian sense of anti-Orientalism, right? This idea to sort of ignore, downplay, to, to not even engage at all meaningfully with the lives of Asian people, with the histories of Asian people. And what does that do? Well, among many other things, it makes it much more easy to, for example, ramp up a Cold War 2.0 against China and to vilify and villainize those people and to dehumanize them as a rhetorical first step toward possible conflict in the future. And so on, on that level, I, I definitely agree. And to do it all through the figure of Zhang Qing, um, a member of the Gang of Four and the very heady and confusing cultural revolution um, and all that footage. I mean, as somebody who is particularly interested in the cultural revolution, to see that, that, that amount of footage was also um, a wonderfully fascinating um, experience in its own right. And so, yeah, centering that, I think that there's a lot to say for its credit, for sure. Yeah, definitely hearing that story is just like a story that I've never really heard before. And I thought that it was really interesting that they told the story through China, through her lens a little bit more. And um, yeah, that was really interesting. And then, of course, like just learning, um, you know, that that the the famous couple where the, uh, you know, there, she had a such a response to the kind of patriarchal kind of you know petulism that <laughs> that you know entitled uh european white men kind of have uh you know when he started dating this very you know popular model and she had her own career in life and all this stuff and then you know he wanted to quash all that he just wanted her you know even just that little thing, just kind of like, you know, hearing that story in this context of this greater, you know, history is just so important, I think, for us to hear, because I think it puts it in the context of kind of this petulism that, um, that imperialistic societies have. And this is like a microcosm of it, this marriage, you know, that was, that was, um, falling apart because of his like sense of entitlement and ownership that I think is kind of present in a lot of like, uh, you know, white males. And I want to point, so like this was a moment at which like we're talking about very serious things and, you know, this is a, this is a serious history that Adam Curtis is telling. But I do think that there are also moments of humor 
Oh, of course. Where like the figures are lampooned, right? Where the camera this in this archival footage, the parts that he uses are made to like sometimes make some of these characters that he's using ridiculous. And I think that that story between uh the the kind of uh He's like an heir, right? Mm-hmm. Or something. <laughs> and this model like is the perfect like, um, you know, almost kind of like a non-story. Like, yes, it's an example of this thing, but it's also just um, like so small in the scheme of all the other stories <laughs> that he's telling that you yeah. really do see, um, I don't know, the kind of humor in somebody thinking themselves, uh, you know, as doing such small things as like a within a historical context, if that makes sense, right? He really did seem entitled to that kind of um, control over her body and what she did in in ways that he justified as like historical, which is just hilarious because <laughs> she made more money than him. And <laughs> the, the mm-hmm. interviewer made him say that like five times. <laughs> and then you really saw him think about it. He was like, yeah, yeah, this is a weird power dynamic. <laughs> You love to see it. You love to see it. <laughs> yeah, and I, w- I would say another thing that he does um, well is breaks down any simple dichotomy between these historical figures as being wholly good or wholly bad. There are instances, I think, of wholly bad people. Um, but even with, like, the, the Russian nationalist who is the founder of, of the, the National Bolshevik Party, um, you know, he—, he, he pitches the story as an interesting to, to view the human not through the simple lens of good or bad um, is an interesting thing that he did throughout because you could easily make some of these figures into pure villains um, and he didn't do that easy thing and I thought that was worthwhile and, and worth mentioning and applauding and a- another dichotomy he sets up throughout and this I think was in his his article interview with the New Yorker which is interesting for anybody wanting more insight in, into the film is this dichotomy between the revolutionaries and the engineers of society, right? Like the B.F. Skinners of society who are trying to understand and modulate and, and manage a society and the revolutionaries who often are rebelling against the system, but in various ways ending up being consumed by it. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And the entire thread of artificial intelligence, for example, comes out of his analysis of like B.F. Skinner and the role psychology plays in man- maintaining the status quo and this neoliberal technocratic approach to society that doesn't offer a story or a grand vision, but seeks merely to maintain stability for its own right. And the sort of neoliberal managers of many societies do that. But now with the rise of artificial intelligence, it's allowing that responsibility to almost be handed over to the machines. And that's that's a trend that Adam Curtis is pointing out as a negative trend and an outgrowth of this technocratic neoliberal order. Although he himself, and this is interesting, never says the word neoliberal when much of what he is talking about diagnosing and critiquing clearly is what often is referred to as the neoliberal order. In one interview, he said he doesn't use it because the term is so rot that the moment somebody hears it, they think they know what it means, and they so they'll sort of stop listening. And so he's using that. He's not using that sort of strategically. Um, but I think that part is interesting. And if there's a critique, though, I would say that um, there is this there is this lack of talking about 
um, capitalism broadly. It's it's gestured at. It's it's referenced sort of obliquely. I mean, it's clearly centered in the sense like focusing on the communist revolution in China is centering a reaction against capitalism, the Soviet Union and its collapse, etc. Um, it's it's a central player here, but it's not necessarily pointed out as such. And in fact, I would argue that there, if there is any mistake here, and this is probably a mistake of Adam Curtis more broadly is he sort of flips the, the, the relationship between ideas and material re- reality backwards, right? A Marxist might say that material reality, the mode of production and social relations, come first as the bedrock in determining the flow of history and ideas are generated and then turn around to maintain that base. Um, but Adam Curtis flips it around, and he really does center ideas as the motive force of history. And even in the title, It Can't Get You Out of My Head, is centering ideas inside the minds of individuals. And he seems to, like, when he talks about, like, financialization and that whole neoliberal turn, he seems to talk about it as a response to trying to maintain and contain individualism. And not, as I might put it, individualism being an ideology that is generated and aggravated by the underlying you know, flow of capitalism and the neoliberal turn itself, which with Reagan and Thatcher got turned into a hyper ideology of individualism. Um, not necessarily the other way around, if, if that makes sense at all. That's a complicated uh, sort of argument, and that's something that I think is more present in, in Adam Curtis's work more broadly. But if there is a critique to be had, it would be something like that, I think. No, I was just going to say, like, why Why are you even bothering with the rest of this episode? That, that was <laughs> mic drop. Done. Yeah, totally. It's done. <laughs> I mean, but it's true. And, and that makes me think, so, um, like, when I was thinking about this documentary, I was thinking, because Adam Curtis's career has been so long, and I was just kind of wondering in terms of, like, who is his audience? Or, and is his audience different now than the audience that he had when he first started making films? And is that maybe part of the reason for his approach? Like, is is there a movement more generally towards, um, you know, thinking of of history as a set of material conditions rather than ideas. And then maybe Adam Curtis's um, mode of storytelling just maybe hasn't caught up to that. Like, are we back, I guess, in, um, you know, in like a Marxist moment uh, where people are reevaluating like that chicken or the egg dichotomy? Um, so that that was just like, I don't actually know the answer to that question, you know, and, and his movies are seen on the BBC, which reaches, you know, like an educated um, you know, suburban up, upper middle class public. So like that's also something to consider because for like those people, for example, like neoliberal is like not necessarily a bad word. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know the answer to that. But I do wonder that um, if you do see that maybe a filmmaker who hasn't caught up to the new uh, discourse that's been happening. Yeah, and I think that that does speak to a different or a whole conception of his notion of ideas where he is saying that a new set of ideas need to come about and it's clearly sort of implied that both hyper-individualist capitalism and the old collectivism of communism are failed, but it's, I think in reality, what does what happens is not that wholly new ideas are generated his, through history, but because there's we seem to be like in a spiral moment where we're stuck in something, 
old ideas that have been for decades discarded and dismissed as irrelevant are actually coming back and becoming important. I think Marxism would play that role at the moment, right? In this moment of not having any capacity to generate a new vision or to move forward, um, rabid inequality, the rise of the far right. It's not so much a whole new set of ideas that need to be generated out of whole cloth, but some old ideas like a Marxist critique of fascism and of political economy could actually be relevant and offer a way forward, even though for many people they're seen as outdated and and old, you know, maybe mixing with after mixing with the realities that we've been through the last several decades, informing Marxism in new ways, like through the struggles of identity politics, for example, but combining it with a Marxism that allows people to connect across identities in their common class interests while understanding and respecting the different experiences and oppressions that are generated through identity in a white supremacist, settler colonial uh, society. So, yeah, it's very, very interesting to, to think about his view of ideas and how old ones can be new in certain contexts. I think about the technologies or the ways that we're able to, you know, distribute goods to people and, uh, you know, kind of the, in a, the efficiencies that maybe could be harnessed now in terms of like these distribution channels that like Amazon has built and all of this and like harnessing that for like the greater good. And, you know, I, I, I'm interested in some kind of examination on that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, taking some of these old ideas, but putting it in the context of where we're at now, and where maybe these giant technologies, instead of just being ways of like mass, you know, data gathering in order to advertise to people, you know, maybe, you know, there was like some kind of way to to harness it for some kind of old idea becoming more workable now in a sense of where like maybe where some of the cultural revolution or or some of the uh, in Russia leading to famine and stuff like that, then maybe that wouldn't mm. happen now where now like capitalism, you know, is like specifically more so leading to, you know, giant amounts of famine and, and unregulated, you know, just people dying from diseases. And I think COVID-19 has specifically put a lot of that in perspective to people that maybe would have never considered those ideas before. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think, you know, just to take that thread in one direction, uh, looking at climate change, it's quite clear that the overproduction and overconsumption that is inherent in the capitalist model uh, is not sustainable and that we should think of sustainable ways to produce and distribute goods and necessities rather than just consumer items for their own sake, filling our oceans with plastic, building up huge you know, garbage dumps in every, on the outskirts of every city, etc. And so that comes to something like rational planning, something like central planning, which is a, a scary word for somebody who believes in the free market, but it's becoming more and more credible as a way forward now that we have technology that can quickly coordinate across space and time to maybe become more rational in what and how we produce and distribute goods so as not to create this over excessive sort of throwaway consumerist culture with a garbage patch the size of Texas in the Pacific Ocean. And that's just taking that one thread that you laid down, um, Joshua, and taking it in just one direction. But um, yeah, there's a million there's a million discussions we could have off, off that idea for sure. I do have a question for all of you. So I was thinking about in the la in the one of the last conversations that we have, I don't think it actually made it in the episode, but Diana brought up specifically this film and talking about the whole idea of, uh, yeah. you know, the Illuminati was created as kind of like a hoax 
um, almost like a satire in order to prove that people were, uh, you know, there's no way people would buy into this like conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory. And I'm curious to hear all of your thoughts about that specific thread and maybe even in context of how I'm thinking about it and like, you know, a lot of people think satire might be dead now because we're, we're at this like place where, um, you know, everything just feels so insane in the world right now that, you know, satire isn't even like that radical anymore. Hmm. Well, yeah. And like context is gone, like because of partially because of the internet or specifically, Mm -hmm. I think in the case of the Illuminati, the context for it is gone. Mm -hmm. Like it's been stripped of the, the, its origin where we just talked about like, like a psychologist comes up with a thought (laughs) experiment. Like what if there is something called the Bavarian Illuminati, you know, and, and my cat has a lot to say about it as well. One second. I mean, the name is great. I'm just gonna, gonna give them props for Illuminati as a name. Great branding. (laughs) <laughs> well i think the, I mean, the I illuminati think, uh, was real at right. first but it wasn't like some kind of centralized <laughs> shadow government right like it was like a society of you know i think like how i understood it it was basically like the lions club you know <laughs> joshua <laughs> Lebeer, quote of the day Just, the illuminati was real man <laughs> i think it was smarter than to chop off the bavarian part i mean it's sleeker yeah. it's a little bit you know it's easier to to use. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, going back to the first episode again, so I just actually started rewatching this whole thing because it was so, such an immersive experience and I lost so much by the end of, uh, of the seven hours. Um, and I was startled that I missed this, you know, starting back over, but there really is a thesis to this and it's already, you, know, you guys have already talked about it, but one of the themes that's overriding throughout it is the the idea of this is like specific American paranoia and dread and the way that isolation has just just dumps gasoline on it, starting with, say, like the frontier or, you know, white settlers expanding the frontier and growing distrustful of the centralized government. And then again, with with white society largely moving to the suburbs and growing paranoia there. And then now I think the, the, a case can be made for technology and the internet causing a similar isolation where now something like the Illuminati uh, can really take hold of people and really help their fear and distrust blossom because it gives them a kind of order to it instead of just a feeling that you can't really put a finger on or why it's there. Um, this just gives you a reason. And I think conspiracy theories also allow you to not have to look at the real problem. So if you're somebody committed to ideas of like America is the best, freest, most democratic society on earth and capitalism is just synonymous with human freedom, then those two things are less likely to become your object of critique or even to come across your mind as something to critique. And so in that in the void that that creates, you have to sort of find boogeymen and other explanations for why things aren't going well. And conspiracy theories certainly offer up um, one way to, to do that. And you can keep all who you already have established in your mind as the good guys and the bad guys, and you can just flesh out this broader story. And we see that in something like QAnon, for example, where the people who are drawn to QAnon, they already have a set of commitments as to things that can't be criticized, people that are pretty much good and people that are pretty much bad, and they just sit, split them into their little their little units in the broader conspiracy theory, and it makes sense. And it's it's something that you could easily, you know, 
with the social media, for example, easily spread, um, etc. And then to the idea of the Illuminati in the film, it really does, as I said earlier, this idea of people creating and then being consumed by their own ideas. The, you know, in the Playboy article, this was made as as a joke. It was made as like a a satire and parody. But then the author of it became <laughs> a believer of the conspiracy theory that he himself created as a joke. And that really pulls out that deep theme that Adam Curtis is playing with of, of advancing and then being consumed by uh, the same ideas. And I think that is a particularly fascinating example of that. I want to make this argument. I'm gonna. I think there is a moment, though, where <laughs> Adam Curtis su- suggests, maybe, that we should be a little bit more generous to conspiracy theorists because things that seem like they would be conspiracy theories have actually happened. Like our government has actually done them, right? So, so like the the, the paranoia is not unfounded. You know, it, it's it's actually based on like history and like historical fact and documentation of like the things that the United States and like Britain and China, like all of these countries have actually taken part of. Um, and like, and I think that's, that's still the case, you know, even with like QAnon and these like conspiracy theories that, that kind of circulate today, there are parts of them that really they're just echoes of things that have actually happened in the past. Um, and that maybe in the future we'll learn are happening now. So I don't know if I want to make that argument. I don't know if I want to say some conspiracy theories are real. Um, but I do think that, um, it's, it's important. I think Adam Curtis tells us that it is important to realize that these aren't just people fabricating things out of nowhere, that this paranoia comes from somewhere and that, um, there's an opportunity there for other, um, ideas to kind of wedge themselves in because they are so similar to what we already know actually happens. Well, and I think that's like the dialectical argument, right? It's like uh, there are absolutely MK Ultra, Cointel Pro, like uh, Nixon. Um, I think Adam Curtis actually has a short film you can watch on YouTube. I think it's like six minutes long called Why We All Became Richard Nixon. And <laughs> I think that's exactly what it's called. Um and like there are these actual conspiracy theories there are real reasons to distrust the government there are real reasons to distrust institutions there are real reasons to you know especially for black folks you know and uh marginalized people have been exploited by uh the medical and and scientific communities like these are real things that existed and there're absolutely reasons to distrust people um, so I don't think that we should judge these people too harshly. It's more just a sense of like, you know, mo- how do we move beyond it and give a better story and point out who the real enemies are rather than, um, you know, boogeymen, I guess, or, or scapegoats. Yeah. I, both of you are a hundred percent correct. And that's why he includes like MK ultra in the show to show mm-hmm. you well, this sounds crazy right the government is giving people acid to try to control their minds and and uh you know that seems absurd it's like QAnon level absurdity but it's a hundred percent true and in fact you know mk ultra what we know about it is only from a fraction of a fraction of the documents that weren't burned <laughs> so it's like they had some documents set in a separate building most like 90 percent of the mk ultra program is er- eradicated from history and what we know of that fraction of a fraction is is 
bewilderingly, you know, hypnotically just absurd in its own right. So you're absolutely right. He is gesturing toward some level of empathy for the people that get sucked into conspiracy theories, for the people that get sucked into stuff like Brexit and voting for Trump. Um, there is some segment of those people who are not wholly evil, villainous, racist creatures, but are human beings that, for various reasons, don't have a full conception of what's going on, can't make sense of the world, and in some ways are just so fed up with it that they'd rather, as he says, you know, give you the big middle finger by voting for Trump or voting for Brexit than anything else. It's just like an F you to the whole system because it is so exhaustive and you feel so tiny and, and, um, mm. not powerful at all. And, um, and, and one more point about a conspiracy theory is like when you look at something like QAnon, you know, like this is sort of a smaller example and it doesn't get brought up in the film, but like the whole Epstein thing is like, is a kernel of truth yes. at the center of like save the yes. children QAnonism, right? <laughs> and so that once again, you see this kernel of truth in reality that deserves genuine critique and is, is connected to high powered people. But then when there's no other answers, mm -hmm. it can be just spun into this crazy mm -hmm. tale mm -hmm. that we know as QAnon. So that speaks for that point as well. So... <laughs> we probably should have planned like a six part like conversation on this film, but uh for the sake of my editing, do you guys have any closing thoughts on this film? Okay, Patrick has given me big eyes. I mean I definitely don't have closing remarks on this film because I have not done anywhere near done thinking about it or processing it. It's reconvening a year when um there's a whole new ninety part Adam. <laughs> um my closing thoughts are and we'll we'll talk more about it maybe in my recommendations section um but i have i'm really interested in people who try to tell big histories right whether that's in like television or film or in like the podcast form like i think history itself and the way that it's constructed stylistically has always been really interesting to me. And I think that this is just like a really great um, example of like one other way that you can tell a history. And I think it's more unusual. I think it's more abstract. Um, I really just love the writing of his narration. I, I think it's really clear and concise and it just like moves from point to point really deftly. Um, so I, I just, you know, like this as like a film product, like it's an unwieldy project. And I think it's really well done for how out of control it can surely get with all the different threads that he's trying to tie together. So it really is a feat to be admired in some ways. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with what Patrick said about having to digest this film. It's not something that you just finish and then you wake up the next day with a take. Like it takes time to settle and to think about and to 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 mull over. It, it is a, an experience intellectually and, and emotionally. I do think as as some final words, uh, his overall uh, problem, right? The, the problem he diagnoses as we have no story. And that this is the end of individualism as we know it are things that we should all, no matter what your political leanings are, take incredibly seriously and try to figure out ways to overcome on the individual level, interpersonally, and on the collective level, geopolitically and within nation states, between parties, etc. Um, if we allow that the system as it stands to continue to butt its head against the wall, it's going to create more and more pathologies like we've seen, particularly in the last four years. But you could even stretch it further back than that. 
And you know, the one little event that was was happening right as this film was probably just about to be released was the was the um insurrection on Capitol Hill. And in some ways that really gets at it really reflects a deep theme of of this entire uh, series, which is lots of anger hatred, um, you know, dissatisfaction with the system. But as Adam Curtis has said in, in, in other interviews, when they finally got into the, the seat of power, what did they do? They defecated on the floor. They walked around taking selfies. They didn't really know what to do. <laughs> and that, I think, is a theme of the series, which is people are pissed. People are angry. People are, in some cases, rightfully angry. But nobody has a solution, left, right, or center. I think Adam Curtis is saying nobody is is able to advance a meaningful solution that could speak to people across experiences, and that I think is something um, we should take we should take seriously as well. And these are not easy problems, but before you can cure anything, you must have a proper diagnosis of the problem. And Adam Curtis helps us get there. I mean, my closing thought is similar to all of yours tells a story that I think needs to be told so we can create a better story to move forward and figure out what kind of society we want to build out of this one that seems to be crumbling around us. And essentially, I think it's important to watch and see and just have the context and that emotional feeling of that context that he discusses in order to you know, see that, you know, David Graeber quote of, you know, about how we can change this world. All of these structure, all of these institutions, all of these, you know, stories, all of these things come from human beings. And, um, you know, they're not sacred. So let's build something better. So with that, what should people watch <laughs> after their seven hour experience of watching? Can I get you out of my head? I got one. Follow it up, I would say, with another six hours of uh, Cue Into the Storm, um, which is a docu-series on HBO that deals with similar themes, but it could not be more different stylistically. Um, I think, uh, Diana, you called um, Adam Curtis's narration precise or something like that. Clear. And I would say his language is very clear, but overall, Can't Get You Out of My Head is very impressionistic. It is not um, throwing too many overt um, statements at you. Uh, meanwhile, like, Cue Into the Storm is a fast-paced, heavily edited, uh, or, like, snappily edited um, prop, like pop culture product uh, with you know, intense sound design and all kinds of other things going on that are not in uh, the Adam Curtis documentary, but is about, it's a deep dive into the Q Anon phenomenon. And basically it's a filmmaker who spends three years really trying to figure out who or, you know, what group or individual is behind Q. Um, and it uh, just finished, I think, uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was watching them concurrently, Adam Curtis documentary and the Q documentary, and it was really, um, it, you know, very whiplash-inducing uh, because of the changes in tone, um, but I think they go really well together, actually, um, and I think they inform each other in interesting ways, especially talking about how uh, Adam Curtis and Kinky Joe to my head gives you more context for why somebody would 
jump into a conspiracy theory or would um, be ready for one. And these Q people that you're talking to, some of them, they're really, you have to appreciate that QAnon has given them a purpose in life. You know, you have to have some, you know, some empathy for them because um, there's a reason why they got there. But I would say, you know, it is just uh, such a different movie, but uh, what a pairing. I, I'd recommend it from personal experience. I also watched both of those around the same time, so. <laughs> um, I have two recommendations, and my recommendations are purely based on the documentary form, uh, which you're all so surprised that I am recommending here. So um, again, you know, like I like I said in the main part, I'm interested in how people tell history and how people kind of craft those stories of history. And while watching um, this again, because I also did like a second rewatch of the episodes, I was watching the PBS Hemingway documentary by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. And I started watching um, the first episode of Exterminate All the Brutes, which is um, Raoul Peck's newest series for HBO Max, but based on Sven Lindquist's uh, book, Exterminate All the Brutes. And um, you really just get like three different ways of like approaching this long history form. Um, and all of them do things really well. And I think all of them have things that they could take from one another to like strengthen their documentaries. Um, so I just think that as as a pairing, if you want to watch, I don't know, 15 hours of documentaries, watch uh, the film we're talking about, Exterminate All the Brutes and Hemingway, the PBS series by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. All great recommendations for sure. I just did actually finish up uh, Into the Storm, the QAnon documentary on HBO Max. So I can, I can, you know, also say that that's really interesting to watch. Watching that alongside the Curtis uh, documentary is like taking an upper and a downer at the same time. It could be probably disorienting, but uh, worthwhile. <laughs> um, and you know, and, and as as I think Patrick alluded to, QAnon is a story, right? If we're talking about Adam Curtis saying we need more stories in lieu of good ones that are meaningful, people will still create them. They just won't necessarily be as productive and and good for the world. QAnon is one such story. So uh, it's it's. It's interesting how that connects up with with Curtis's diagnosis. But I would just recommend something within um, the the Adam Curtis world for those that might watch this film and be interested in it and want to go a little deeper. And for that, I would recommend Century of the Self by Adam Curtis. Very similar approach um, and in some ways weaves very interestingly with the main themes of of this recent Can't Get You Out of My Head. And all of, I think, Adam Curtis's work, I'm pretty sure, are free on YouTube on his YouTube channel. So I watch this for free on YouTube and I watch Century of the Self the same way. Um, So that makes it hyper accessible for everybody as well. So that'd be my recommendation. So I also have two... um... Diana recommended one of mine. I just started watching Exterminate the Brutes, and it's incredible so far and just does such an incredible job at telling the story of colonialism in the United States and and in the world so far through personal essays and just the bigger context of of history and I'm just blown away so far. I'm two episodes in. Um, and yeah, Raul, Raul Peck, you know, who did, uh, I am not your Negro and the young Karl Marx, uh, directed it. Um, and it's just incredible. And then the other one I'm going to recommend is another Adam Curtis film also on YouTube. Uh, I think it's also on Amazon prime, but it's called, um, 
all watched over by machines of loving grace i watched that pretty much right after i finished this one and it's kind of more specifically about the rise of the internet and how computers have like failed to liberate humanity and instead have kind of like disoriented us and and kind of you know given us this kind of hyper information overload that we're in right now that i think leads to these stories similar to you know like you guys were mentioning with uh QAnon into the storm and and you know this is like something that can happen um where if we don't you know provide good stories then you know those ones will prevail um so i definitely yeah you guys are going to be doing lots of documentary watching let me just say (laughs) (laughs) all right well brett thank you so much for taking the time to come on yeah it was an absolute honor to be here with all of you thank you so much for having me and where can people find out more about your work you can go to revolutionaryleftradio.com. It has all three of our podcasts, Rev Left Radio, Red Menace, and Guerrilla History. Um, they're all left-wing, decolonial, anti-imperialist perspectives, but we talk about philosophy, history, current events, etc. Can't Get You Out of My Head is available from the BBC and for free on YouTube on Adam Curtis Documentaries. For KIOS, I'm Joshua LeBure. For Film Streams, I'm Patrick Kinney. And for Film Streams, I'm Diana Martinez. 